I'm Adrian Sykes. Welcome to Did You Know? The podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we're joined by one of radio's most influential DJs, Capital Dance's Mr Jam. Whilst I had a little technical problem with my mic, we managed to talk about his journey to break into radio, his other show business excursions, and his ambitions for the next generation in the music business. The way I see it is that the music industry is like a six-form common room, right? And in the corner are the cool kids. And the cool kids control what's on the stereo. They can control who gets to go over to the kettle to make a cup of tea. You know, they, they control it. However, as always, we started by asking why he chose a career in the music industry. That's a very interesting question, Adrian, because I've asked that same question of myself numerous times <laughs> over the years. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a photo of me aged two years old at the kitchen table with my Fisher-Price record player playing music. Um, I've always been obsessed by music. I would go into friends and family members' houses, immediately go to their record collection. I'd, you know, want to know about music as much as possible. Music was my solace. I grew up in a part of Nottingham that was very much kind of X minor. And like it was hilarious because the neighbours were the people that introduced me to Prince. The first time that I ever saw Prince is 1999 was in their house. But they were supremely racist. <laughs> so the point was is that they would shout racist abuse up to me in my bedroom. Literally every single word that you could think of. This is all pre-five, so this is all my memories of where I used to live before I was five. But I used to sit with that Fisher-Price record player and listen to record after record after record, and music was 100% my solace. Having some sort of a career in music was something that I always dreamed, but I never knew how to get into it. I just knew that I had this passion, I knew that I had this love, and was completely obsessed with records, and I was lucky because I was born early 80s. So I grew up in an era where... Music was really exciting and loads of things were happening. So there'd be the compilation albums. I remember there was a compilation album called Rap Tracks that had like yeah. Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince on there and it had BBS MPs, I Need You. <laughs> then there was this compilation uh, called The House Sound of Chicago that had like Marshall Jefferson on there. Um, then it was a compilation called Deep Heat. And at the same time, there was all the reggae music that, you know, that I grew up around. You, you, you know, your Dennis Browns, your John Holtz, your Bob Marley's. You know, there was the, the, the tail end of the jazz funk and the boogie scene that my uncle was really into. So I remember having this tape called Funk 86. And on one side was Janet Jackson's Control album. And on the other side was just all of his 12 inches from that time. And it just imbued in me this love and passion to try and be involved in the music industry. If I'd have designed my career up until now, it wouldn't be the way that it is, but I'm really grateful for what it is. One thing that I do know with you is that the hustle was very real from very, very early on. Oh, yeah. You were out there DJing from 14, right? You know, they had this crew called Out Deville. That's right, that's right. So, I mean, I've kind of got to take it back to before that because you had uh, uh, an old friend of mine, Rich Castillo, on uh, on the last season. I've known Rich since I was seven years old because we both went to the Junior Television Workshop in Nottingham. Going there was an amazing experience because, you know, not only are you around some of, you know, the biggest and best actors that have come from this country, being around those people and learning communication skills. And every Christmas, there used to be a Christmas disco. So I've got this love of music and Christmas disco would come and I would stand next to the guy that was doing the Christmas disco. And 
he, for some reason, I would have been about 12, was like, do you want to go? It's the first time that I ever touched a set of decks, and this is how geeky I'll get, and this is how much I remember, Adrian. They were a pair of McGregor MD-10 all-in-one <laughs> mobile DJ DJ decks. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's geeky, and that's, that's, that's how much it touched you. I'm, I'm impressed with that. Exactly. With that. <laughs> I remember playing Rampage's jungle version of The Monkees and it going off. And me going, this is me, like, yeah. <laughs> but he said to me, the DJ um, that was that was DJing the Christmas party said, gone to Ian Smith, who used to run the junior television workshop, and said, next year, don't book me, book him. So I was like, okay, how do I learn to DJ? And there was a, there's a youth club in Nottingham, where there used to be a youth club in Nottingham, in Heisen Green, Heisen Green Youth Club, and there's a guy called Courtney Rose, and he runs the Take One studio, and back in those days, he ran this program called Dark, which stood for Drugs Awareness, Reality and Knowledge. And the idea was is it took kids from Nottingham that had an interest in music and they were like, right, you come here, we're going to teach you black history, we're going to teach you drug awareness, and depending on how well you do on the black history and drug awareness courses, you can get access to this recording studio that we have out the back of the youth club. So I obviously went there and did everything that I could to get into this recording studio. And, you know, we're talking late 90s. So going into this recording studio, there's a reel-to-reel there. I was learning how to stripe a tape. I was learning how to EQ on a mixing desk. There was uh, an Akai sampler. Uh, all the, the the kind of the programming was done on Cubase on an Atari. So I'm learning all of this stuff. And there was a guy there called DJ Fever. And his job was to teach DJ skills. So the first time that I touched a pair of Technics was at the back of Heisen Green Youth Club. And I used to spend hours and hours and hours practicing in that youth club. And Courtney's got a brother called Trevor Rose. And Trevor used to run a similar studio at the other uh, kind of inner city area in Nottingham called St. Anne's, a place called the Acne Centre. And every Saturday I'd go to the Acne Centre. Every Thursday I'd go to, the, to uh, what has become Take One at Heisen Green Youth Club. And Trevor's thing at the Acne Centre was he would develop rappers. So there was a rapper called Lee Ramsey, uh, a rapper called Scorsese. Uh, there was Instinct, there was Charisma, there was Temper. There was a load of rappers that were around at that moment in time and they all formed this rap crew called Out The Ville. And I was the DJ for them. And we, Trevor got a phone call from a very young DJ Semtex saying we'd like to book out the Ville for an event. Amazing. We travelled up Snake Pass to Manchester <laughs> and my first professional DJ gig was at the Hacienda in Manchester. The only way's down, right? <laughs> <laughs> the only way's down. I mean, I'm impressed that you stayed, you, you stayed there and gone beyond. It's like, you know... <laughs> that's, that is amazing. That's amazing. So yeah, from that's where the kind of the first DJ set came from because of uh, Trevor and Courtney Rose, because of what they were doing at the Acne Centre, because of what they were doing at Hyacinth and Green Youth Club, because of what they were doing with Take One. You know, I was allowed when I was 14 to, to do my work experience at Take One. So I'm there and I'm learning. I'm learning how to DJ. I'm playing youth clubs. I'm phoning up, you know, uh, all of the people, God rest the dead, you know, DJ Swing to add me to yeah. mailing lists. Rest, you know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm phoning up Semtex. And I'm being added to these, these, these mailing lists and I'm getting records and I'm thinking I'm the guy and I, you know, <laughs> start up a radio show and, you know, just trying to hustle my way in through any way possible. And um, what happened was is when I was 16, I mean, I've always been from the age of like 12, 
I've been 6'2 and the same size that I am now. I had a beard when I was 14, which is why I was allowed in. It's the Hacienda. <laughs> Otherwise, you're only going in from the back door, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I had a beard, so I was all right. But uh, what that meant was that I went and I started to DJ at Nottingham Trent University Student Union. Right. And they have a radio station there that's now called Play Flight. It used to be called Fly FM. They used to get this limited license where they would be allowed to broadcast on FM to Nottingham and the surrounding areas. But as a condition of their license, they had to have a certain number of local residents on the station. So I bullied students <laughs> at the age of 16 <laughs> to get on this radio station. And that was my first taste of radio. So the first time that I walked into a radio studio, uh, they, they were playing carts off floppy disc. Uh, like it, I was walking up to the radio studio with my turn, to, you know, with my records and playing on turntables. And they used to leave me in the studio by myself because they knew that I knew what I was doing, which was amazing. So, yeah, that, like you say, the hustle was real, but it wasn't simple. It was just, I love this. What can I do? How can I find a way in? You're doing that. And also you're still at school, GCSEs and try, trying to get an education. Yep. You're working and writing for local magazines. Yep. What's mum and dad thinking about this? What were their <laughs> ambitions for you? And what were your ambitions for you at that particular point in time? Do you know what? I'll be very honest, Adrian. I, I, my household was very dysfunctional. Like, I grew up in a very, very dysfunctional household. Um, but what my parents did for me is that they always made sure that there were things there that I kind of needed. Because I was just on this mission from as long as I can remember to try and do something. You know, what, what my house lacked in, shall we say, love and functionality, it was made up for in stuff. I was lucky enough to have a computer, so I was on Windows 95, so I was able to do research on stuff. Do you know what I mean? I was, right. yeah. I, I, I was able to, to, to save up. I mean, I was working from the age of 16. I managed to get a job at, at MVC, which is now kind of defunct music video and, and, and game company. So I I'd had a job from 16, so I'm saving up my money. I've bought my decks, you know, because of what I was doing at, at, at Take One. I've bought an MPC. Um, you know, I'm making beats in my bedroom. I'm, I'm making radio shows. I had the tools that were available for me. I mean, look, my parents, they did the absolute best they could with, with the tools that they had. And I'm just really grateful that it meant that I was able, I'm an only child, so I was able to spend so much time reading liner notes being a geek, <laughs> teaching myself this stuff. <laughs> and listen, we're all listen, we're all geeks to the music, but you know, you're 120 miles away, you're in Nottingham, and it's it's really interesting you talk to Rich because I'm sure it's, a lot of your experiences are gonna be very similar to Rich's. But at what point do you think that this career or a career in music is viable? It's something that, that you could, might be able to pursue. And how are you going to make that journey? Do you know what? It's interesting because when I think about it, you know, my first DJ gig at, at the Hacienda was in 1998. The first time that I thought a career in the music industry was actually going to be possible was in 2007. You know, nearly a decade later. That's when I went five days a week over at the BBC on One Extra. Before that, I'd got a few acting jobs, so I was in a daytime TV soap for a period of time. Yeah, we know. We know Scotty Minton. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, min, min, Minty, Minty, Minty Sutton, as he Minty was called. Sutton, Minty Sutton, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Minty Sutton. It's all good, it's I, all know, good. I, I, I have to tell you, I had no idea. 
and I can't. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> let's keep it that way. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, it's out there now. It's, it's in there. People googling this right now. We all do things when we're eighteen to earn money that we're not necessarily proud of. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You should be really proud of it because it's really another facet to your bow. And it's one of the things that kind of led taking you on the journey to where you are now. And actually, I'm really interested in not just that element of it, but what it's done for your family. Because clearly, it's a gene that's running through the family. You oh, know, 100%. I'm, I'm following you on Insta, Insta my friend. I'm, I'm seeing, <laughs> I know what's going on. I, know, I, know, I, know, I can see those kids kind of Oh, 100%. Out. The thing for me is that if you're coming from Junior Television Workshop and you're sat, you know, every week learning about performance, learning about communication. And I think, you know, for me, the transferable skill, I wouldn't be able to talk the way that I speak. I wouldn't be able to communicate to people the way that I speak if it wasn't for being at the June Television Workshop. But what that also meant is that it was invaluable for kids like me who, again, had no route into the professional side of the business. But then you look at who the Television Workshop has produced and, you know, Last of Us, Bella Ramsey that's in that, she's Television Workshop. Samantha Morton, Vicky McClure. Like, I could be here for hours talking about these amazing actors, but, you know, I just wasn't good enough. But what it did mean is that I was put in front of casting directors from time to time, and I managed to get bit parts and kind of extra roles as a kid, and I used to take the money, and I genuinely would spend the money on records. Then this thing came along for the relaunching Crossroads. This was in the year 2000. Like I say, I was 18 years old. I get a role in it, and the first thing that they do is, so what are you interested in? So I was like, I I adore music. So like, right, perfect, we'll make your character a DJ. So... (laughs) (laughs) Art imitating life, right? Exactly, exactly. So I was then, it was really weird because I was kind of in this really weird position where I was phoning up pluggers going, I might be able to get one of your tracks into this TV show. Always looking for angles to get on the mailing list, right? See, I love the hustle is real. Listen, Rob Pascoe, if you're listening to this, I told you I'd come through and I did. I got some of your tunes on the telly. <laughs> but yeah, I did that, and then I kind of after that I went and I got a I was I got a job in a West End musical, and you know again this thing of trying to be in the music industry. I thought, can I be a singer? Can I be a vocalist? And I trained, and I did this show in the West End, and the show closed. I then tried to audition for other shows. I did this terrible audition for Ben Elton. I walked in, and literally it was a proper X Factor hit the wrong note and that was it my confidence was shot I'm like that's it I'm going back home so I ended up moving you know I moved down to London for the West End musical and I used to spend all of my time in all of the record shops in the West End literally all of my wages in the record shops in the West End I managed managed to hustle a few shops in Nottingham to go listen I can get you these tunes that they've only got in these shops in London if you if you give me the money I'll (laughs) buy you the tunes yeah just keep one for yourself one for you ten for them yes exactly exactly (laughs) that's what I did so I did that but then I got a job at a a credit card company um because I was like you know what I'm, I'm chasing I'm chasing a dream and it was when I was got this job at the credit card company, I moved back home that I started to work with Joe Buda, an amazing producer from Nottingham. I linked up with him because, again, he's part of this extended Nottingham crew. And we started to work together. We ran uh, an independent record label together called Sure Shot. 
We had a distribution deal with GrooverTac. So, you know, I'm dealing with a distributor in Germany. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sat learning and teaching myself Photoshop so I can do cover art. You know, I'm, I'm writing label copy. I'm doing all of this stuff and learning on the fly as we're running this label. We also had started to do promotions and we put together this thing called UK Takeover. The idea of UK Takeover was at that point within the hip hop scene, um, there was grime over here and then there was UK hip hop over there. And the big tunes were the big tunes in both of the raves, but the ravers were different. So we thought, what would happen if you were to put everybody together on one stage? So you would have, you know, Kalashnikov on the same stage as Dirty Goods. You know, you'd have, you'd have Boy Better Know on the same stage. So we put it all together. And I remember the first show that we did, the police thought, we're going to lock this one off. So we lost a lot of money on that first show. The second show, we... We managed to, to pull it together. I, I have vivid memories of me going to the bank and withdrawing money on my credit card in order to pay the artists because we really wanted to make sure that this thing would run. And what we were doing is we were, we were slowly building this thing and Lady V from V Rocket Sound System in Nottingham, um, she, you know, I'd known her again since I was seven years old because her daughter used to go to the television workshop. And she had a radio station and she and Joe Buda were friends and obviously she knew me. So we got a show on the pirate radio station and we're doing this stuff and we're building all of this stuff. And her son, DJ Marley, gets a show on One Extra. So we're like, what's this One Extra thing? And I applied. I applied through this kind of BBC online thing to try and get a job at One Extra and got turned down. Well, I didn't even get a rejection email. But because Amali was there and I was doing what I was doing with Joe Buda, there was a link. So what we were able to do, we were able to put on some events, prove that we were doing what we were doing, and then approach one extra and said, look, do you want to come and do a live broadcast at one of our events? And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. They came up and did a live broadcast at a UK takeover, brought Ace and Viz along, kind of saw what we were about. We then managed to book KRS-One to go and play at Rock City in Nottingham. The legendary Rock City. Absolutely. Um, you know, at that point, I'm resident for Detonate at Rock City, which is a drum and bass night. Um, we, we, we're doing our events. We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing the other. And we book KRS-One and we approach One Extra and say to them, look, why don't you come and do, you know, a live broadcast from this? It's KRS-One. They're like, yeah, no problem. Listen, I, I, I'm putting my money in this, so I'm going to play the warm-up set. So I played the warm-up set and I got approached by Laura Lucans and Ray Paul, who at that point were two very key players at yeah. One Extra. And they were like, do you do radio? I said, yes, I do. I do pirate show. They're like, well, listen, tomorrow we're going to do this thing with KRS-One. Uh, if you can bring us like a demo tape, then we'll, we'll have a listen. Turned up the next day with eight hours of radio. And I'd gone home that night and recorded a pilot show in my home studio. I was up until 6 a.m., and this thing started at 10 a.m. So I turned up with all of these burnt CDs that I'd burnt in, in double to make sure that they worked, going, here's me. And, and Ray saw that I was serious. So he's like, why don't you come down to London next week and we'll pilot you. So I went down to London and walked into these studios. Now, the last time that I'd walked into the Radio 1 studios at that point uh, was without Deville when they were a guest on another show. So I'm like, okay, this is real. I got thrown into the studio with an amazing human called Janine Campadu and she threw everything at me and I was able to do it all and they offered me a show and that was 2005 
And so I started in One Extra doing a Thursday night overnight hip-hop show. I did all of this while I was still at the, at the day job at the credit card company. So I'd do a full day's work. I'd drive down to London. I'd do the show. I'd drive back home to Nottingham with no sleep and then do another full day of work. After a year, Manny Norte left One Extra. So they offered me his Friday night show. And that gave me an opportunity to show my multi-genre-ness. The fact that I wasn't just this one guy. So, you know, I remember playing... Uh, your partner will love this. I remember playing D-Mob, Come and I Get My Love. And then oh, yeah, yeah, he will He will absolutely <laughs> love this. Yeah, He's listening there, probably smiling, thinking, did I get the royalties for that? Let me just... Let yes, me he would have. Me, yes, he would have. Yes, let me just check the statement. <laughs> but this is the thing, I'm turning up with vinyl, so I'm playing my original seven-inch vinyl on the radio <laughs> and mixing that into Daft Punk and doing all of this stuff. So they were like, they realised that I knew my music. They decided to launch a show in 2007 that essentially was going to be the place where multi-genre black music would get a space on radio and get a chance to really kind of show what it's worth. And they offered it to me and I said yes. And that was the point where I thought, Do you know what, a career in the music industry might be okay. I mean, it's remarkable that you've gone through such a journey done so much, landed the show on one extra and only, what, five years into that journey thought, you know what, this is real. Yeah. So my question is, why did it take so long? Why the mindset of, you know what, it's not it's not quite there yet or I'm not feeling like I'm a part of this yet. What made you think that way? I mean, I've always been an outsider. I've never been part of the Cool Kids Club. You know, I, I to this day, I, I, I still kind of don't get the invites to the things and that's perfectly fine because I would rather stay in my house. Thank you very much, to be honest. Me, me and you both. <laughs> Jam, me and you both, it's all good. But I have always been an outsider. I've always been, you know, the, the kid from Nottingham that had to prove his worth. When I got to One Extra, you know, they threw tests at me. All the other DJs threw tests at me and I had to prove my worth. And it was that thing of, you know, a, an executive at the BBC once sat me down and said to me, if you play your cards right, you might be able to be the next Trevor Nelson. And I said, you know, no disrespect to Trevor Nelson. He's an absolute legend. I've grown up listening to him. And to be honest, every time I walk into this building and I see that I walk alongside him, I have to pitch myself. But why can't I be the first Mr. Jam? Yeah. And he couldn't answer me that. And I think it was that thing of, there aren't many people like me in the industry. Those people that look like me in the industry aren't necessarily in positions of huge influence and power. And the few that are in huge positions of influence and power, and, and there are many few, they all come from London. They all come from the same kind of few miles. And it's almost like because those people are then coming up under those people can see that those people exist. They know that it's true. They know that it can happen. They know that it's real. Representation matters. The thing for me is that I'm from Nottingham. I'm already from outside of here. I remember watching Channel U and, and seeing stuff that was happening in London and going, but that's happening here in Nottingham, but no one's talking about what's happening in Nottingham. And there was always this kind of M25 blinkers that meant for me... I couldn't see where I could go because the path hadn't been set yet. And whenever I'd break through a glass ceiling, all I'd find is more glass. And it was that point where I was like, okay, so I've got to create the path. And it was that period of time after I'd really kind of been and I'd proved my worth and I'd brought that same work ethic that would mean that, you know, I wouldn't have any sleep to be able to try and get on to what I was doing then that meant 
I'm creating something new and I have to try and forge this forward because no matter what happens, I have to make sure that the generation that are coming behind me have something that they can aspire to regardless of where I end up. Yeah, now listen, I think that's really important. And obviously, that's why you and I are sitting here having this conversation because your journey, we'll call it the hustle, but your ambition, your desire, your commitment to your craft and to to create something for you from a base in Nottingham, and say 120 miles away from, from the big metropolis, it's quite an incredible story. But that sense of outside is something that I think that people of colour feel regardless. So... Was it a double whammy with the grass eating being a black man trying to make it in a very, very white, white world in, in which radio was and still is to a, to, to a certain degree, as well as being the guy who lived in Nottingham and, and kind of was looking at this thing from afar through a kind of periscope and kind of going, how do I get there? Do you know what? I see it as my superpower now because it means that I don't have to deal with a lot of stuff. And the more time that I spend, and I have spent over the years in the music industry, the more that I see that there is a lot of, there's a lot of expectations that are placed on people that come from a certain area. There's a lot of expectations that are placed on people that kind of come from a certain school. The way I see it is that the music industry is like a sixth form common room, right? And in the corner are the cool kids. And the cool kids control what's on the stereo. They can control who gets to go over to the kettle to make a cup of tea. You know, they they control it. Then there's the geeks over in the corner who, you know, are actually making this thin run. And then there's the people that are in the middle, that are the outsiders, that kind of don't fit into either camp, but can coexist with both camps. And that's where I see myself in the fact that it is a superpower that I can be somebody that that can communicate with everybody, but without having to be part of something. I don't have to be part of the gang. You know, I don't have to be part of the clique. I can just do what it is that I do because I genuinely love it. And I'm lucky enough to know that, that the audience that I speak to as a broadcaster, the audience that I speak to as an artist now, the audience that I spoke to as, as a record exec, you know, they liked what it is that I was bringing to the table to the point where it didn't matter that I didn't fit in. I think that the cool kids who sit on the outside and look, or, the, or the geeky kids or the nerds who sit on the outside and look at the cool kids making the coffee, drinking the tea, placing the hottest 12-inch on the stereo, have now been moved out of the way and you guys have taken over. <laughs> that, that world is very much inhabited by a new class of people that are taking over the world of music, have that power, have the power to change. This is the thing. People like me... We don't care where you come from. We don't care whether you're cool. We just care whether what you bring to the table is something that you're passionate about and that you personally are a good person. That's it. This is the thing that I always used to do when I was, you know, curating music for One Extra or, you know, when I was curating music on Radio 1 or doing dance anthems and, and the stuff that I'm doing now at Capital Dance is it, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It matters if it moves me. It matters if it moves an audience. I think that's that's something that, you know, when I, I spent my days in, in A&R and setting up, you know, record label and stuff and, and, and doing the stuff that, you know, myself and my wife, Claire, who literally, we met at the credit card company and she's literally been with me since day zero. She's been great, by the way. You've got to thank her for me. hassling her, hassling her <laughs> life out She probably hates me now, but Claire, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> But we linked it with Andy Varley, you know, the, right, okay. who, who runs Insanity. And he always believed in me at that point. And we built some really good things. We built this this company called Speakerbox. 
that was a record label that was an events company. Uh, we did a deal with Ministry of Sound. We signed, you know, some great artists. We ended up, you know, having a number one single with with, with Second City's I Wanna Feel. Uh, and this is all stuff that, you know, that, that I'm getting involved in because I'm passionate about. I'm using, you know, that that same work ethic to be able to be passionate about stuff. And there was at points where I'm like, well, within the music industry, I've had a number one single. That's an undeniable number one single. I had, you know, the, the, the most listened to show for dance music in the country. You know, I, I was helping so many artists start their careers and giving them their first radio plays, whether it be, you know, an Ed Sheeran or a Tiny Temple or whomever. What more do I have to prove? And then I really realised that, you know what, this is where I'm messing up. I've made it about me. I've made it about my ego. I've made it about what I'm bringing to the table and I'm the big I am and I'm the guy that's doing this and I'm the guy that's doing that when really take it back to the passion, take it back to the, to the Fisher-Price record player. What moves people? You and I first kind of came across each other properly in probably 20... 2010. Yeah. I remember it. I remember it perfectly. So do I. We're not going to go there now. We're just going to... <laughs> but, you know, at that point, Jam, I mean, there was the thing where, I mean, I wouldn't say you were the gatekeeper, but that show on One Extra was incredibly important to a lot of people, as you know. Yeah. If you could get through that gate, if you could get Jam to listen, if you could get Jam to listen and to play, and if you get Jam to listen, play, and be expansive about <laughs> about the music <laughs> he just played from you, you knew you had half a shot. Did you ever feel that kind of responsibility when you had that music in your in hand? And to that degree, a certain, a certain level of power in your hands as well. I never saw it as power. I genuinely didn't. I saw that I was a cog in the machine. I would accept emails from people that I'd never met before and if the music was great I'd I'd play it I'd break radio rules and play records you know four and five times in a row if I truly loved it but I never really saw it as power I saw it as as you know what I was doing on somebody else's platform was pretty much what you know rest in peace Jamal Edwards was doing on his platform at the same time, at the same time that Posty was was building with Grime Daily or GRM Daily as it's known now, or, you know, Rashid was 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 building with with Link Up TV. And, you know, we're all existing, we're all coexisting in this space. The difference was is that because I was in a studio next door to the big boys, they would pop their head in, they would hear what I was playing and go, what's this? And then, you know, they would then be able to pick up on these records and then move these records on. They'd be able to pick up on these artists and move these artists on. And I just saw that what my job was at that point was to be a source and to be tapped into, you know, we used to call the show The Key to the Underground, to be tapped into what's going on and play the stuff that I truly believed in and that I loved. And if I truly believed in it and I loved it, then it might have a chance, it might not. It didn't mean that I wasn't going to play it. And there's, it, I, I was just really lucky to be, what should I say, I don't believe in look, I believe in gratitude. I was really, I'm really grateful that I was in that place at that time. But what I had underneath it all was this kind of thing of, again, this glass ceiling. You know, when you're in a big corporation and you are seen as the source, you're never going to get your chance to kind of get the spotlight. Never going to get your chance to kind of be front and centre. And again, another exec at the corporation told me that, you know, that I'm a great midfielder, but I'll never be a striker. Right. <laughs> and it, but it's that point where you kind of, where I then had to have a proper word with myself to go, my ego is ruining this. 
my ego is ruining this experience for me. And also, do you know what? This experience isn't for me anymore. I feel like I need to leave, but we'll get that, get to that yeah. point. Oh, no, we're, we're, <laughs> we're definitely going to get to that point. But yeah, I, I want to dive back a couple of frames because one of the things that really resonated with me at the top of the interview was you talking about the dark program and the fact that there was a real sense of you, you've been able to learn black history and have a real sense of understanding how did that affect you at the time? And what do you feel that's done for you as you've gone through? Because it's quite an unusual thing, particularly in our world, to have been able to have been a part of. Absolutely. The way I see the world is that when we realise and recognise our differences and we see them as something that we can share with others, that's where we grow. But you can't recognise and realise your differences unless you actually look into it. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. I've dove into it various times over, you know, the years. We're all different, but we're all the same. And it's it's trying to find the ties that bind. And if you are constantly saying, I'm the same as you, I'm the same as you, but completely ignoring where we're different, that then means that there's a disconnect. Whereas if we're acknowledging our differences, but then building something, that's where I think that the growth will come from. So for me to have knowledge of some of my history of, you know, I don't know all of it, <laughs> I'll be honest, but to, to have this knowledge, but also to know that I'm in a big corporation and there's very few people that look like me and the majority of the people that look like me are all over here in this corner. And we're all allowed to do this one thing, but we're not allowed to do other things, regardless of what our passion is. You know, one of the other things that I did while I was at school is that I used to play drums in a rock band. That I didn't know. <laughs> like, I've, I've always had this passion for lots of different genres of music, but I was never allowed to show that side of me. It was always, you've just got to do this. You've just got to be that guy. You know, there were some opportunities that came up. There was a TV programme that I did called No Hats, No Trainers. So again, being able to kind of put that old acting head back on, but being involved in that as a music consultant as well and going, hey, we maybe should get this guy called Jamal Edwards who's building this thing and put him on BBC Two, um, at, you know, prime time, noon in the afternoon for young audiences so that they know what SBTV is about. Or, you know, there's this this young ginger kid from Framlingham in Suffolk who <laughs> yeah. is he's plays doing... guitar. <laughs> yeah, he plays he's guitar. Not bad. He's, he's not, not bad. that bad, yeah. <laughs> and I remember, I remember the, the show that we were putting out, there was an episode of it and one of the execs at the corporation was like, who's a tinny tempura? Why are we putting this tinny tempura on? <laughs> Nobody knows who this tinny tempura is. And that was on the Saturday. On the Sunday, he went to number one. So it was like, okay, we kind of know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> when you look back at that jam, and even now, how important is it to you to kind of lift up that next generation, to kind of be the hand that kind of pulls them through and shows them the light? I think that for me was very much the bedrock of the first half of my career. If I look at my life so far, I have been doing this since I was 14 years old and a, a few weeks ago I turned 40. I've been Mr. Jam longer than I've been anything else. I almost feel like, if anything, my, my, I'm kind of halfway through where I might potentially want to be. You know, I, I'm still on the ladder. I'm nowhere near the top. But the first kind of half of my career was about investing in other people. But underneath all of it was this genuine, deep-seated fear of me not being good enough that meant that I was never really able to explore the more creative side of what it is that I've always wanted to do within the music industry, which is to be an actual creative rather than 
purely help other people to achieve their dreams, to dare to dream for myself and then try and make that happen for myself. At what point does that fear allay itself and you kind of go, you know what, I'm going to do this because... I think that we all feel a certain amount of trepidation about, particularly in, in, in the job that we do. So I'm really interested to hear at the point we went, you know what, I'm just going to, it doesn't matter, I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to park it and just go for it. I mean, I'll be very honest, you know, for me, it was spending so much time, spending so much of my energy and spending so much of myself helping other people and then feeling... And like I say, looking back at it now, I can see how much of it was my ego and I was I was definitely out of whack. But feeling like I was doing all of this and I wouldn't get even a thank you. You know, I'd, I'd see these artists and I, I, I would genuinely go out of my way to help them. And they would then become some of the biggest artists in, in, in the world. And for the majority of them, they wouldn't then come back on the show. They wouldn't even, you know, when they were coming back with single three or album two, they were too busy to come on the show. And it, it happened over and over and over again. And I got really bitter and I kind of ended up getting to this space where I was like, something needs to change. And the thing that needed to change was me. And I got to this point where I was like, I either need to change the way that I look at this, the way that I live my life, the way that I look at the world, the way that I look at what it is that I do, or I need to go and get another job. And in 2018, um, there was a gentleman called uh, Sean Holbrook who was managing me at that point. And, you know, I'd I'd always made beats. Like I say, I had this MPC from the same time that I had kind of the, the decks in my room and I'd always made beats, I'd always made tracks and there'd been a couple of things that had come out and I was always too scared. And, you know, he sat me down and my wife Claire sat me down and it's like, why don't you just try? And at this point, you know, I'd been making tracks for a very long time. I'd gone from Cubase on the Atari to Logic uh, to to Reason to Ableton. You know, I'd, I'd got loads of stuff on my hard drive and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try it. And the first thing that I kind of put together got signed to a label. Uh, to uh, There's a, a house music producer called Cedric Gervais from, uh, from France. Uh, he's got a label and he signed it and he put it out and then I'm getting tagged in, you know, um, photos and, and, and videos of Fatboy Slim playing it uh, in his shows and I'm like, wow. I'll tell you a funny story about Fatboy Slim. I'm like, wow, the last time I saw Fatboy Slim, I was sat in Idris Elba's studio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was me, Idris Elba, Fatboy Slim, Harry Love, Diplo and the rest of Major Lazer and we were going to start a crew to go into one of the Red Bull culture clashes, but it all fell through. <laughs> so let, so let, let's just stop there for a minute. There's the boy from Nottingham at 14 has kind of gone this journey and you're sitting at a legend amongst all these legends. What's going through your head at that point? What are you thinking? I'm thinking I have no reason to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Like, I genuinely, I'm thinking, why am I here? And fully enough, the first question that Diplo asked me was, why are you here? <laughs> and to be fair, the reason why he asked that is because he knew that I worked at the same place where David Rodigan worked and he knew that right. David Rodigan was part of Rebel Sound. And he's like, right. are you a mole? Are you trying to find out what I'm trying to do? <laughs> but no, I didn't, like, there's been so many times where I've found myself in situations going, I, why am I here? How am I here? 
you know, being being at Maid of Vale and seeing Emily Sande perform and going and, and turning to Glyn and going, you either need to sign her or I'm starting a record label to sign her. And going, why did I say that? And why am I here? And what's going on? Mm. You know, um, I remember even again being at Maid of Vale again and, and being there with Sarah Cox, I'm like, Sarah Cox, I used to watch you on TV, Sarah Cox. And we're both stood there and we're watching Beyonce record. And then, you know, I get to interview her and she walks into the room and she goes, hi, Mr. Jam. I'm like, what is going on? It's a great picture, by the way. I mean, it is a great picture. It's a great picture. It is a great picture. I mean, I do look a little bit like Jabba the Hutt who's about to eat her, but (laughs) (laughs) that was before the weight loss. (laughs) But yeah, I've been in so many of those situations where I'm like, how am I even here? Even, you know, fast forwarding to when we were lucky enough with Speakerbox to work with Craig David and to sign Craig David um, to the record label. And, you know, I remember sitting down with Craig and saying to him, you don't understand the impact that you had. Because I remember passing my driving test and and kind of driving around in my Cavalier and listening... <laughs> Listening to to Rewind and hearing that there's this kid called Craig who grew up, who was, you know, chubby and fat at school and was bullied for being chubby and fat at school, but he was obsessed by music. And he's from Southampton and he sounds like that. And he's and I said to him, Craig, you don't understand the impact that you had on kids like me because you were from Southampton. You, you were into your music. You got bullied at school because of how you looked. And again, like I'm saying, I looked in the industry and there was no one that looked like me. But if Craig David could do it, I could do it. So do you sit back now and go, yeah, I actually belong in this room. I have a place at the table and it's it's deserved. I don't. Why not? Because I'm building my own table. I don't want to be in a room where where I'm getting the nod. It It feels hollow to me. What feels right to me is, you know, I've been doing this series of posts on my socials um, because I'm finally feeling like, you know what, I've I've had so much rejection in my career today. You know, I remember making demos and sending them to defectors and I still remember the being called to the office and thinking it was going to be good news and no, it wasn't. It was, no, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even up until now, you know, as an artist, I've 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 signed a deal with with Virgin in Germany that's now universal internationally, and you know, shopping as an artist for a deal in this country, and a lot of people that I've known for a number of years, going, keep going, but no, and so for me it's like okay, I want to build something new, I want to do something new, you know, I don't feel that it's fair. In this in, in in this country, in, in the way that the industry works, that you know, if you are of colour, if you are, you know, you, you you can only do one thing. Do you really feel stifled? Do you feel that closed in by the inability to break out of the barriers that people are putting around you because of the colour of color of your skin? I tell you what, I do feel. I feel like I know how to navigate, and I've learned how to navigate. And if there is a closed door. I'm not knocking on the door, I'm building a house and I'm opening my door. You know, like I say, I broke through so many glass ceilings and I found more glass. I've stopped breaking through glass ceilings. I've built a greenhouse of my own. You know, (laughs) and the windows open and the roof opens. Do you know what I mean? It's it's and and, and to be honest, that's that's part of the reason why 
And the broadcasting side of my career, I felt like I needed a change because I, I achieved everything that I was allowed to achieve. Let's talk about that. Before we jumped on and we did this, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was effusive in my praise, but very genuine about it because I think, you know, it's, it is a, it's a remarkable story, Jam, and it's, it's a leap of faith that some people wouldn't have taken, given where you were at the time. They would have waited for something else. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there, when you actually did it, scratched head and went, the man's, the man's lost his mind. What's he doing? But, Absolutely. You know, what, what's come from it has been incredible. So please tell us all about it. I'll tell you what it was, is it was that, you know, we during lockdown, um, I was still going in to do radio and I was so grateful for, for doing radio, you know, because I, I genuinely do have a love for radio and I always will have a love for radio, but I was going in and I was doing the shows and then George Floyd happened and Black Lives Matter happened and there was a lot of things that, I realised that being part of a huge corporation means that, you know, I, I was making myself physically smaller in rooms. I was not raising my voice. There was so many of those kind of, if you play your cards right, you'll be the next kind of conversations that I'd had. Um, and, and and the thing that always kept bringing me back was the camaraderie and, and the kind of the, the respect that we had for each other at, at both of the places where, you know, I used to work at the corporation. But then when you are by yourself in a studio and everybody's locked down and you're travelling in and out of London, other than that year when I was 18, I still don't live in London, but you're travelling in and out of London and there's this thing happening and I was just like, I don't, I don't love it anymore. I don't love it anymore. And there were things that had happened in terms of, when I say I achieved everything that I was allowed to achieve, I literally did, you know, I, I, I covered that seven till nine show on Radio One and I I was able to, you know, break or help have a hand in helping to break some big artists through that show. I did I did the inter- the return interview with Liam Gallagher, you know, one of the guys whose music I used to cover when I was yeah. in the rock band. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. and I'm like, I've proven that me, who looks like me, who comes from where I come from, who people might know for one thing, can go and do this and do it because I know about this. I love this. I, I, it's not, it's not a hat that I put on. It's I genuinely love this. I've done that. You know, with 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 one extra. When I moved to Drive Time on one extra, I was told, "Oh, you're probably never going to reach the numbers that the previous presenter did." The first quarter, I smashed those numbers and continued to smash those numbers. When I moved and I was doing the Saturday afternoon show, Dance Anthems, it was like, okay, hopefully we can get to, you know, build the build the listenership. It ended up being, you know, the biggest dance show in the country. It was the most listened to radio show for under 35s on the corporation. But yet it was like, okay, I've done everything. What's next? And I don't feel comfortable. And I need to find something else. And it was someone who probably you would never expect that I picked up the phone to ask for advice somebody who I got on really, really well with, who um, has been nothing but helpful to me. And his name is Chris Moyles. I phoned Chris and I was like, I need some advice. And I explained the situation. And he was like, I'm going to have a meeting with the director of broadcasting at Global. What would you do? And I pitched the idea for Capital Dance. And he went and pitched the idea to the director of broadcasting. I got a text from him saying maybe it would be a good idea for us to meet and we met and we chatted and it was like this feels like the next thing this feels like I'm not knocking on a door I'm building my house at this point you know I'd really found a confidence in my writing as a songwriter 
and as a producer and I'd found a groove and, you know, I'd signed to a record label out of Holland at that point and I'm putting music out there and I'm realising that the world is a lot bigger than the world that I thought I had in front of me. And, you know, launching a brand new radio station in the way that we did during lockdown that's purely about uplifting people, that's purely about good music, that, you know, is staffed by a 100% minority um, presentation team. And it's growing. It feels like, like I say, I'm, I'm building a house. I'm not knocking on a door. And off the back of that, having the confidence to kind of go in a room and write a song and that song end up on David Getter's desk and that then bec- that then becoming a collaboration and David's going of course we'll do it as a collaboration of course and and me going again how did i get myself into the situation because in my head i'm still with this kid in a bedroom in nottingham with a fisher price record player but the biggest you know one of the biggest artists <laughs> is going of course <laughs> so i'm like it just, like I say, I, I can go on and on and on about it, but it feels like I'm building a house. It feels like I'm building a skyscraper, put it that way. <laughs> Build it as hard as you can, brother, because you know, we, <laughs> we, we, we need guys like yourself to continue building those houses, building those rooms to allow others in. But going forward, when you look around you now, do you see greater representation? Do you see more people that look like you in and around those in, the, in and around those radio buildings, do you think there's more opportunity off the back of the great work that guys like yourself and the Trevors and others have done? I think what I'd say is genuinely I am I'm hopeful more than ever for the for whatever happens next for the next generation. I'm also hopeful for whatever happens next for my own career. Because I, I came to a really deep understanding that it isn't me, it comes through me. None, like I say, none of this, Adrian, is by design. None of it is. It's all come through me. So I am so grateful that, you know, when I walk out into the building at Global where, you know, that is the parent company of, of, of Capital Dance, that I'm seeing representation. But not only representation because it's representation. I'm seeing people in positions that they deserve to be in because they're good enough to be there, because they've worked for it and because they're the best candidate for the job. You know, I, I look over at the old corporation and I'm so heartened to see people like Jeremiah Asiyama being given opportunities that that I wasn't given when I was there, but I know that because I managed to kick down a few doors there, that he's able to show his true excellence. You know, I look at the fact that community stations, as they stand in terms of radio and broadcasting, they're what they're the places they're dominating popular culture. You know, Munya Chihuahua, you know, you, Mo Gilligan. Snoochie shy, like I could go on and on and on. There's all of this talent that is coming through and it's coming through not through a token. It's coming through because they're really good and the door is open. And that's the thing. That's what I was saying to you earlier on in terms of if we're able to to share our differences and learn from them and grow from them, then you're in the position that we're in now. And like I say, for me, the next thing that I'm really focused on doing you know, Capital Dance is growing. It's growing exponentially. And I'll say it again because, you know, there's been a few reports recently that have completely missed us off 
We are a 100% minority presented radio station. I am the only male that is on the presentation team of this radio station. And we're growing and we're playing great music. And outside of that, it's the artist project that I always wanted to do but was too scared. I think the great thing, Jamie, is that you know, you're actually going out there and actually doing what you what you say you're going to do, which is you're lifting people up off the back of what you're doing, which is so important. We've been talking a long while, and I know you've just finished the show. I'm grateful <laughs> the fact that you've, you've taken the time to talk to me. So I don't want to keep you too long because I know Claire wants you to get home for dinner. And it's, a, it's a long drive back up the M1, and I get that. So, you know, I'd like to finish with a few quick-fire things, but one of the yes. things that I, I love about you, because... Yeah, you know, fact that we say we've known each other for a minute, but I spend a lot of time scrolling through the Insta, and I'm there looking at Jam, and he's kind of you know, lots of positivity. But there's a young there's a young family coming through that fo- that are following in the, in, the, <laughs> in the Jam footsteps. So, you know, I always like to find it from guys like yourself. If you, and it's much more relevant to you because they're they're living your dream. They're they're walking in your footsteps. What would you tell them? to do as they grow and, you know, if, if they want to succeed? Two things. In fact, no, there's three things. There's three really important things that I kind of, that I do now, which, you know, first and foremost is, do you love it? Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter how much money it's paying. Doesn't matter what the opportunity is. Doesn't, you know, do you love it? Or is it something that really, really feeds you? Number two is, are you willing to work for it? Because... I've learned that I am not in control of the outcome. I'm just purely in control of the effort. That's it. That's the only part that I control. The rest of it is down to whatever. And the third thing that is really, really important that I think, you know, that I'll tell them is everybody's going to have an opinion on what you do. But if you've ticked the first two boxes, does it really matter what anybody else thinks? If you love it and you're willing to work for it, go for it. And I think, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, my son being in, in, in musicals, my daughter doing what she's doing, you know, my youngest doing what she's doing. It's just a lovely story to see kind of played out in front of yeah. your eyes. And, you know, you know, you know, not just the fact that they're, do, that they're doing this, that you're doing it as a family. There's a real family dynamic to this and the support they're getting in the background, which is so important. I don't think people realise the importance sometimes of... of parents constantly being there constantly building up and i think that's you see that shining through with what you and claire do when you're kind of following the kids around to different parts of the uk when when they're in shows it's it's amazing absolutely and you know what they they, they, it's 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 the same as me i could give them advice until the cows come home but they've got to make their own mistakes didn't we all (laughs) exactly Um, (laughs) so uh, your journey's kind of like still just on the first going around the first lap my friend but you know what do you want your legacy to be in this business? Do you ever think about that? I used to, and then I, I realised that that was pure ego. All I've got is today. That's it. All I've got is today. But don't you think thinking about legacy is also a case of thinking about the things that you want to to try and enact as you go? I mean, it may not be stated as legacy, but it's, you know... I hear, you, I hear what you're saying. I really do. I, like, I genuinely do. But I think that for me, if I can keep things in the day, then I'm fine. 
I think if I start to think too far in the future, I get anxious. I think if I start yeah. to think too far in the past, I get depressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what? I, whatever, whatever my legacy is going to be, it hasn't happened yet. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to make sure that I'm moving from a place of love and making sure that I'm putting in the effort and not trying to control the outcome. That's it. Listen, you're a DJ, a producer, a remixer, an artist. You've put on live events. You've been a record executive. You've acted. <laughs> but, you know, and I say this with the greatest respect and I hope you take it the right way. You're an unbelievable hustler, my friend. And, you know, your <laughs> journey you know, your journey and the commitment you've shown to it and what, what you're doing and you continue to do is remarkable. You know, it, it, I don't think you should ever forget that there are a lot of us out there that look at what you're doing and are immensely proud of it. And, you know, we support, from, you know, we might have up the phone and call, but we support from afar. But listen, from the Did You Know family, thank you for your time. Thank you for being you. And thank you for joining us on the podcast, Mr. Jam. It's been a pleasure. Do you know what? I've been a fan of the podcast from literally the first episode. You're giving people a space that deserve a space. And there's so many more. So long may it continue. And Adrian, thank you. I appreciate you more than you love enough. Thank you, sir. I'm Adrian Sykes. And this was Did You Know? A Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Mr. Jan for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Dishman Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the DigiNo podcast. Head to our website, www.didyouknowpodcast, or one word, .com, for all the information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And make sure you look out for our next episode of Did You Know, where we talk to Atlantic Records, president of Black Music, Austin DeBow about his career in the music business. I've always been quite lucky in that I've always had supportive managers that have given me a voice when it comes to non-black music issues. But I want to make sure that we open up the, the pipeline even wider so that the new generation that come behind me can, of course, excel in black music. But if they actually feel like their destiny lies in rock, dance or pop, then the colour of their skin isn't going to hold them back in terms of people taking them serious. This was Did You Know? Until the next time. <laughs>